So, without further ado, let's finish the story. We're going to read the end of chapter 4. It will come up on the screen as well, but feel free to follow. So, we're going to start reading from verse 13. So, Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer or kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we have already celebrated this afternoon your faithfulness. Lord Jesus, we've been reminded of how good you are, how you are our king, and how you reign. And we've been reminded that we are sons and daughters. And I want to thank you right at the start that you do all things well. That nothing in your kingdom is haphazard. And I pray that as we look at these verses together now, you would speak to each one of us. We would see your faithfulness afresh throughout the generations, right down to our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. Great. So my hope today, as I've sort of hinted at already, is that we will see just really in glorious technicolour the provision of our Father God as the story comes full circle and really reaches its climax. So we're going to look at um, that in three ways. The first way, we're going to see God's provision to Na- uh, sorry to Ruth, first of all. So we're going to see how she goes from being a widow to a wife. And then we're going to look at how God provides for Naomi And she kind of takes centre stage at this point as she meets the women who, at the beginning of the book of Ruth, saw her grief and emptiness and who now share her joy. And we're going to look as well at God's provision to us, as Simon hinted at a couple of weeks ago in providing another baby born in Bethlehem. So first of all, God's provision to Ruth. So we've seen the beginning of that uh, little section there, verse 13, Ruth and Boaz marry, yay, so that worked, and this leads to the birth of a child who becomes part of the royal line of Israel that leads to King David. 
And right at the start, I just want to remind us that these verses demonstrate the knock-on effect of a hesed lifestyle that's been played out throughout the whole of the book of Ruth. Now, hesed, you might remember, is a Hebrew word for kindness. And we've seen it in all the previous chapters. There's just a few little examples that are going to come up. So chapter 1, Naomi says to Ruth and to Orpah when she's urging them to stay in Moab, may the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. And then in chapter 2, when Naomi hears that Boaz has let Ruth glean in the fields and he's looked after her, she says of him, the Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. And then Boaz says it of Ruth as well. After hearing her proposal, he says, the Lord bless you. This kindness is greater than that which you showed me earlier. And we've thought about previously how actually kindness doesn't really do the meaning of hesed justice. It makes me think of at school, we have um, a few golden rules and a couple of those involve this word kind. So we talk about having kind hands and kind feet. Uh, really just another way of saying don't hit and don't kick. Um, but really, like that doesn't, that doesn't really equate to what these characters are referring to here. It's not the same kind of kindness, is it? You can't really apply it to just a noun, your hand. Actually, it's a steadfast, rock-solid faithfulness that talks of covenant love. A love that reflects the very heart of God. And what we find here in chapter 4 is that Hesed comes full circle. Boaz's Hesed has led to his marriage to Ruth, and her Hesed to him has resulted in securing his love and giving birth to a child. And so God's provision here to Ruth is so obvious. The Ruth at the beginning of the story really had very little going with for her, on the surface at least. So she was a foreigner, she's from Moab, and we know that that's a country that was looked down upon. She was a widow, she was barren, we can assume that because the previous marriage to Malon hadn't resulted in any children, and that would have been obviously very unusual of the culture at that time. So she's vulnerable, she's got no hope, she's got no future. And yet, now, as a result of God's hesed intervention, we see her married and with a baby in arms. And so the book of Ruth shows us that, yes, God is the God of history, and we'll see that later. But also, he's the God of the details. He is interested. He doesn't just see us sort of blurry around the edges. He sees in sharp focus the things that bring us pain. And the reality is that we, like Ruth, also know moments of hopelessness. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe we can be tempted to forget who we really are. We forget, as we've been reminded of today already, that we are beloved, precious sons and daughters of God. And instead, we look to our circumstances and we agree with the voices of failure, of disappointment or comparison. The good news is that the story of Ruth points to a greater story of Hesed that we are all a part of. God's loyal, loving kindness in Jesus. And of course, his death and resurrection are the ultimate demonstration of Hesed. There's an invitation again as we read through this chapter to taste the Hesed of God. His loyal, loving, unending kindness that calls us beyond our circumstances, that shines through our brokenness, 
inviting us to a life of joy and peace that gives us identity and unchangeable worth, no matter what is going on around us. Our inner reality is one of a hope and future. And that's what Ruth found. And as we look at Naomi, we also see this same hesed running through her life. So secondly, God's provision to Naomi, she goes from emptiness to great joy. And at this point, so sort of verse 14 onwards, it is like Ruth and Boaz just step aside slightly and Naomi and her grandson become the focus of the attention and prayers. The women around her say, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. They surround Naomi with prayers of thankfulness to God. And actually, these women's prayers, again, help to bring the story first full circle and remind us of God's provision, his providential rule and care. They sort of remind me of a Greek chorus who provide a commentary on the dramatic action. They're always there at the opportune moment. And they show us, remind us of how Naomi had left Moab completely empty, having lost her husband and her sons. And we're told in chapter 1 that the whole town of Bethlehem was stirred at her return. And the women barely recognise her. They say, can this be Naomi? And now, here she is in chapter 4, greeted in Bethlehem by these same women who saw her grief and heard her bitterness. They now share her joy. And this joy is in the form of baby Obed. The the name Obed actually meant servant of the Lord. And it sums up everyone's hope for this child. The son born to Ruth is also born to Naomi in the family of Elimelech. And this, as we've seen previously, is because Boaz is Ruth's kinsman redeemer. Remember, that's a close relative who is able to act on behalf of someone in the family in order to redeem them, to buy back land sold by the family. And we see that in Leviticus 25 outlined. But Boaz also readily enters into a Leverite marriage to Ruth. And remember, this was a cultural practice that we see described in Deuteronomy 25 that makes provision for a close relative to marry the widowed woman in order to produce a son and heir so that the family name goes on and on and on. Crucially, in these two practices coming together, Ruth and Naomi are given a hope and a future. And that is why the women declare that Obed will be to Naomi a renewer of life and a sustainer of old age. As the Leverite son from Malon, Ruth's deceased husband, he is the heir of Elimelech, and so the family name continues. Naomi will have a protector to look after her in her old age, as well as a loving daughter-in-law who is better than seven sons. And it is this future that the women surrounding Naomi are celebrating. And I've quite enjoyed getting to know them, actually, as I've read through this chapter. What I find really interesting is the way they stand in stark contrast to the world's view of how women often relate to one another in jealousy or competition or comparison. And I think we can learn so much from the women's response to Naomi As I was reading all about them, what it reminded me of was where in chapter 12 of Romans, Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And this comes from a place of compassion. It isn't something that can just be worked up. 
One of the things that I was praying about uh, before I went to South Africa as I prepared to go this summer was that I would be more compassionate. And I think it's not a bad thing to pray, but in hindsight, this feels like I was expecting some kind of button to just be activated. Actually, what I found was is that I'm now learning to ask God what love looks like for each person in front of me. This comes not just from empathising with others, but actually it flows from being in the presence of God. We don't have to strive to become more compassionate as we seek to rejoice and mourn together. The key is to follow Jesus really closely so that what he has put inside of us can naturally flow out. So whether I'm talking to the kids in my class or chatting to a friend that I've not seen for a while or even just talking to a stranger in Sainsbury's, what I'm learning to do is to ask God, how do I prefer others in this moment? How can I demonstrate the Father's love to this person? And this feels especially poignant at the moment, doesn't it? As we see the heart-wrenching images of the refugee crisis. Rob's already referred to Wendy Mann's book today, and I have uh, read that over the summer. Would really recommend it. And she says, when we understand that our main role in living a naturally supernatural life is to demonstrate God's love and kindness to everyone we meet, it takes the pressure off having to make something happen. And this was Sarah and my experience when we were out in the summer over at Footprints in Johannesburg. We went out on some of the afternoons to visit local villages and townships and just to meet with local people. And we talked as a team about how it's right, yes, to expect God to intervene in people's situations. Of course it is. But actually, if our agenda is to experience miracles in order to have a story to tell or because we feel obligated or like it's what we should be doing then actually we're making the whole thing about us. When we go simply to love people, it becomes about Jesus and his glory to see what the Father will do. And it was so fun over the summer for me to just let God lead us into conversations and see how we could communicate his Father heart. Whether it was praying for people in the villages, just for a job, which was it seemed to come up again and again for people, praying for healing or just listening to people, just joining in games with the kids or making a fuss of little babies, just seeing how we could demonstrate God's father heart. And I have actually put a couple of photos on the screen just to give you a flavour of some of the people we met. So this is just playing with some of the children. And then the next one is just meeting some of the ladies and, and just being able to pray with them. They were very open to that. And then this is Sarah and I, um, in the mornings we were leading the preschool, so just thinking, what does love look like to these kids? How can we show the father heart? And this one, um, they're, they're actually doing a bit of letters and sounds, so I've got in a bit of my school stuff with them, but doing it in a fun way, in a way that's really going to be meaningful to them. And then that was at the end of the week where we had the tea party. So again, how can we just share Jesus' love with these children? Roland Baker says, where we go, we go together. And I think that these women that surround Naomi understand something of that. They understand something of just loving the person in front of them. They are a beautiful picture of family in the kingdom of God. They're the kind of people that you want around. And of course, remember, we know family, that's one of our cultural expressions, isn't it? 
that we've described as reflecting heaven's community on earth by showing love and acceptance to people everywhere. Remember what Ruth said to Naomi back in chapter 1, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. And when we see that we go together through life, it means every kingdom success is a shared success. There's no competition in the kingdom. I think these women recognise this and they rejoice with Naomi because of the blessing her daughter-in-law has brought. We must avoid the comparison trap. God has a place and a purpose for all of us. And as we grasp this, it is then that we learn to really celebrate with others, even when they get the breakthrough that we are longing for. And notice the women also pray, as the elders had prayed earlier around Boaz in chapter 3, that the fullness of God's purposes on Naomi's life will ripple beyond her own lifetime. They say, may he, that's Obed, become famous throughout Israel. And earlier, in verse 12, the elders had prayed that this unlikely marriage between Boaz and Ruth would be like the great marriages of old in the history of God's people when he surprised them by weaving together imperfect, slightly dodgy human activity with his wise sovereignty. And actually, these women's prayers are of real insight. They seem to appreciate that the purposes of God through the suffering and loss that Naomi has gone through must be greater than can be brought about in the completion of just her lifetime. And this is why the story ends with a family tree. So let's look now, thirdly, at God's provision to us. In these last verses, we are reminded that Ruth is actually part of a much bigger story. We realise that Ruth is a story within a story. Ruth became part of God's plan to bring about the birth of King David. Then, through David's lineage, brought an even greater king to earth. Now, I think genealogies often get a bad press. Um, I know some of you have said that you're doing um, the Bible in one year, and I wonder if you, like me, maybe skip over those parts where you get to all the names. But actually, they serve to remind us of our interconnectedness as humans with generations past. It's important to read them. My dad has always been very interested in our family tree, and lately he seems to have stepped it up a gear and he's signed up to all these different things, subscribed to where you can access different bits of information. And the reason he loves it is because actually he wants to know the stories behind the people. Genealogies are just where it says so-and-so was the father of so-and-so was the father and -and so-and-so. But what's fun about family trees is that you actually get to dig and hear and know about the stories behind these names. You get to see who these people are. And so just a little fact for you that my dad has found out from my family tree. Um, my great-great-great-great-grandfather on my mum's side um, was actually a drummer in the Battle of Waterloo. So there you go. <laughs> and these people, they're actually the history makers, aren't they? What's exciting for us as the people of God is that we are now part of this family described in chapter 4, reflecting heaven's community on earth. And I would dare to say that the final sentence of the book of Ruth sets the previous four chapters in an entirely new light. This is storytelling at its best, where the punchline at the end takes us completely by surprise. Think about it this way. 
No emigration, no return of Ruth. No Ruth, no marriage to Boaz. No marriage to Boaz, no Obed. No Obed, no Jesse. No Jesse, no King David. I wonder if this genealogy sounds familiar. We know, don't we, that this family tree reappears in the opening chapter of the New Testament. If you have got your Bibles, just flick over to Matthew chapter 1. And if you look at verse 5 and verse 6, that is the exact same genealogy as we've just read at the end of Ruth chapter 4. But if you just keep going and follow the genealogy down to Matthew 1 verse 16, it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So in Ruth chapter 4, this isn't just part of King David's family tree. It is part of the family tree of King David's greater son, King Jesus. In that sense, no Ruth, no saviour. Doesn't this throw a whole new light on God's providential purposes behind the trauma of Naomi's experience and the costly emigration of Ruth? What God was doing out of the suffering of these two women was nothing less than his purpose to bring his son, born of David's line, into the world in that same Bethlehem. Remember, Bethlehem means house of bread. So God is not only providing literal bread in Bethlehem for a Gentile woman and her Jewish mother-in-law, but also the coming of the bread of life broken not only for Israel, but in order to bring salvation for men and women in every place. I love that the fact God went to such lengths to bring a Gentile woman into his purposes was already an indication of his great plan from the beginning of time to give his son the nations as his inheritance. Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, all three have experienced God's hesed. His faithful love has led them, provided for them, and filled them. The story that began for Naomi at a time when there was no king in Israel became a day when there was no bread in Bethlehem, and then a day when there was no children in her family. And now, her covenant-keeping, all-sufficient, all-providing God has given her a grandson, and within a few generations will give Israel and the nations their greatest king. He is faithful. He does all things well. And as we finish, remember, of course, Boaz was Ruth's kinsman redeemer. And so too, this King Jesus is our redeemer. Remember, the kinsman redeemer carries a sense of payment of price. It is costly and involves personal sacrifice on the part of the redeemer for the sake of the kinsman or kinswoman. It's always about restoration. And in Boaz acting as kinsman redeemer for Ruth, we see this wonderful foreshadow of the saving work of Christ, his later descendant. 
Boaz had the right of redemption, but he was under no obligation to intervene on Ruth's behalf. Again, doesn't that sound familiar? We were outsiders, spiritually dead, powerless. But God loved us so much that he gave his son and he sent him to the cross. And Jesus was willing. He chose to take on our sin, didn't he? In order that we could know him and he could secure our eternity with him. So just as a new family has been created through the intervention of Boaz in Ruth and Naomi's life, so too have we entered into a new family created by the intervention of our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. In Romans 8 it says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Like Boaz for Ruth, Jesus is related to us and willing to redeem us. We are adopted into God's family, and so we are co-heirs with Christ. The covenant family of God spans the centuries, and it is to that family that we are invited to belong. We have been welcomed home. We have been given a hope and a future. We are eternally secure. So, the God who called Ruth a heathen woman of a nation so hostile to the Israelites is the God who calls us in Christ. And like Ruth, our lives are to be marked by redemption. There's this invitation again today to enjoy our place under the refuge of his wings, to bring, as Ruth did, all aspects of our life under the rule and reign of our Redeemer. Let's pray. Father God, we are amazed. We're amazed at your faithfulness. As we look back through your word, thank you that you have always, always had a plan. And Lord, it's even more amazing that you would include us in your plan. And so God, we want to say again today that we are available to you. We want to bring everything under your wings, under your care, under your providence. Lord, we want to bring our time and our money. We want to bring our hopes and our dreams, our ambitions. We want to bring our disappointments, Father. We want to bring all of it under your rule and reign. And God, we thank you that we come as your children. We thank you that we come running to our Heavenly Father who knows us inside and out. And God, we thank you that you have made that possible because of Jesus, our great Redeemer. We pray that we would live lives of redemption, Lord, to the people around us, that it would be obvious that you have done a great work in us. God, we don't want to keep this to ourselves. So God, would you show us how to do that, even this week? Jesus, we love you. And we thank you for your redeeming power over our lives, day after day after day. Amen.